morning, everyone. Oh, you guys, that was awful. I mean, let's not sugarcoat it. That was really terrible. Good morning, everyone. Hey, yeah, that's way better. Wonderful. My name's Matt. I'm the pastor here at Friendship, and it is sign-up season at Friendship Church. Uh, all of the winter and spring ministries, uh, it's time to sign up. So you saw youth retreats last week. You could sign up on a men's retreat, uh, the new session of core discipleship. There's a lot of different things that you can sign up for. So I'd invite you to check that out on our website and go ahead and sign up for those things that would be helpful to your walk with Jesus. Um, two weeks ago, we had a chance to wish you Merry Christmas on Sunday. Last week, we had a chance to say Happy New Year to you. It seems slightly anticlimactic today to say Happy January 8th. I don't know, is January 8th a thing? Uh, is it a holiday of some sort? Is it anyone's birthday? Should we sing to you? Oh, is it really, Marty? Nice, okay, wonderful. All right, we're going to wish him a happy birthday after the service. Uh, otherwise, I'd have to lead the singing. That'd be terrible for everyone. Wonderful, you guys. I want to lead us in a time of prayer, and I have something very specific that I would like us to be praying about together. Uh, one of our dear friends and longtime members, uh, Hazel Jones, went to be with the Lord yesterday. And Hazel really wanted to go to be with the Lord and was expressing that to everyone. And we are so thankful that the Lord has answered those requests and that she is in his immediate presence today. But uh, Hazel's daughter Sharon attends Friendship Church. She has other family and friends here. And so can we just spend a couple of minutes praying for them during this time and giving thanks to God for the work that he did in and through Hazel. Father, what a blessing it is for us today to know that Hazel is in your presence, that she is united with you, Jesus, sees you face to face. We're thankful for that truth and that hope. Lord, as we worship today, we pray that you would open our eyes by meeting with you so that we can see you in the ways that Hazel sees you right now. God, give us clarity who you are, and your goodness. Lord, we want to pray for Hazel's family, that you'd be with them, that you'd be strengthening them. Be their great comfort during this time. Continue over and over again to bring comfort to their minds and hearts with the truth that the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And our great hope is in that unseen unity that Hazel now experiences with you. We give you thanks for that. We praise you for what you've done in and through Hazel. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get to this morning's sermon, I just want to remind you, because it's different than past years, that next week we're going to be having Blessing Sunday together, a time of prayer and confession and communion that we're going to be observing. But it's going to be in the evening at the Shakopee campus. We're going to do it at the Shakopee campus. There's a little more space there for us to mull around. And so we'd like to invite all of you to join us next Sunday in the evening for Blessing Sunday as we spend time as one church worshiping God together during that time. Our sermon series is called Exodus, the Deliverer. Over the course of this sermon series, we're going to be looking at how God delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt. We're going to be looking at the first half of the book of Exodus as we read about the Exodus. 
And as we spend time looking at God, the great deliverer who set his people free, we're going to constantly be reminded of our great deliverer who has set us free. This fits with the flow of what we have been looking at as a church last year, if you happen to be here, we spent a lot of time in the book of Genesis. We preached through the first half of the book of Genesis in a couple of different sermon series. And we produced life group studies on the second half of the book of Genesis that a lot of our life groups have been through. And now Exodus picks up right where Genesis left off. And so I'd invite you to open with me to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2 together today. And as we do, uh, let me set the scene for you. Imagine living in a nation where in the past, the people of God enjoyed blessing and favor from culture and government. Imagine living in a nation where in the past, the people of God enjoyed favor and blessing from culture and government. And now, decades later, they experience opposition and persecution. Imagine living in a nation where one day you're represented well within the nation's government. The government leaders support you. The government leaders are working for you. And then, decades later, the government and culture have turned against you. They are opposed to you and they are using you for their own purposes. Can you imagine living in an environment like that? That is precisely the environment that we encounter in our opening passage in Exodus. And so I'd invite you to look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 with me. And we are going to walk through our passage today and look at what God is doing in that passage. And then when we're done, I would like us to look at a couple of principles that we can see in the passage about how God would like us as his people to operate in a place of opposition where we might be suffering pain or hardship. We start in the 1800s BC, right? over 1800 years before Jesus in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, and we read, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came in Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Ishakar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. During the time of Jacob and Joseph, the pharaohs and the people of Egypt were favorably disposed to the people of Israel. They gave them land. They gave them animals. They gave them jobs. They looked out for the people of God. Joseph represented the people of God within the government structures. 400 years later, the people of God have expanded. They have grown exceedingly strong and numerous. How many people were in Egypt in the time of Joseph? 70. Did you catch that? Well, if you look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, it will tell you that by the time of Moses, 400 years later, they counted 600,000 Hebrew men. 
Just the men. So we're probably talking about 2 million Israelites by the time of Moses, from 70 to 2 million. That is fruitful and multiplied. But the time of favor ends in part because of how much they have multiplied. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He didn't know that the Egyptian government had said that they were going to show favor and blessing to the people of Israel. And now that there are so many of them, he's got concerns. Next verses. And he said to his people, his leaders, his, his, those who are around him, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. You notice that I said in Exodus 12, 37, they counted 600,000 Hebrew men. Why did they just count the men? Because in this culture, they were concerned about how many warriors there were who would go to war. And so they counted those 600,000 men in order to understand how large is our army. And that is Pharaoh's concern here. How big is their army getting? Oh, they got 600,000 men, and if another nation attacks us, and they turn with that nation and attack us from the inside, we're in a whole lot of trouble. And so we need a strategy. And so here is part one of Pharaoh's strategy in order to reduce the number of Israelites. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Look at some of the words here. Taskmasters. Heavy burdens, oppressed, ruthlessly made them work as slaves is said twice. Made their lives bitter with hard service. Pharaoh says, there's way too many of them. And strategy number one is to work them so hard as slaves that some of them drop over dead. And if that doesn't happen, at least they will be so tired they will stop being fruitful and multiplying. We're just going to work them so hard that they're not interested in anything else because we are going to work them to the point of death. That's Pharaoh's strategy number one. Does it work? It doesn't work. What did verse 12 said? Even as they are oppressed, they continue to multiply all the more. God continues to bless them. So in the next section... Pharaoh is going to move on to strategy number two, and in so doing, he multiplies his evils greatly. Look at what strategy point number two is. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Pharaoh wants these women to kill the boys. There's already an army, 600,000 strong. He doesn't want any more men to be added to that army. And so if it is a boy, he says to the midwives, I want you to kill them right there, right then. 
I cannot read this about Pharaoh's desire to kill the very smallest of humans without mentioning the seminar that Kenny and I are going to be doing two weeks from now. On January 22nd, it is the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and Kenny and I are going to be doing a, a short little seminar on the sanctity of human life and those smallest of human beings and what the Bible teaches us about those things. And so I want to invite you to that a couple of weeks from now. Pharaoh says, I want all of these babies killed, every boy baby killed. What are the midwives going to do in this situation? This is Pharaoh. He could end their life with a snap of his fingers. Here's their response. But the midwives feared God. Take that in. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women, they're not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God uh, dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh is doing everything he can through tyranny in order to bring an end to this obedience of the Hebrew people to be fruitful and multiply. He said, I want you midwives to take care of it. And then when they don't take care of it, he says, Egyptians, I need you all involved in this. Anytime there is a boy born born to the Israelites, I want you to help me carry this out. We need to get rid of those boys. And so he has expanded those who are to carry out his orders. God blesses these midwives who don't carry out Pharaoh's orders because they fear God. They fear the Lord. That's a phrase the Bible uses for people who are primarily concerned about what God thinks and what God will do instead of primarily being concerned about what people think and and what people could do. And these midwives, their primary concern is, for God and what he thinks and what he'll do. They have the fear of the Lord. And so they stand up to the most powerful man perhaps in the world and say, no, we're not doing it. Right? These, these women, they're just so strong. Right? Do, they, do they lie here? It's possible, just like Rahab did. Right? But, but God says, What you have done, even though this part might be wrong, you have done in faith. And I recognize your faith in all of this. And he rewards them and blesses them in it. Now the account moves on to one of those baby boys that they were meant to execute. The beginning of chapter 2 zeroes in on one of those baby boys that those midwives were meant to execute. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Pharaoh's trying to get the Israelites to disobey God's command to be fruitful and multiply. He's doing everything he can to get that stopped, and yet there are faithful people here like Amram and Jochebed who will not stop. Right? We don't get the names of Moses' parents here. We have to wait until Exodus chapter 6 to find out that it's Amram and Jochebed. 
And they are, are faithful and they continue on and they have children. And here they have a boy that they hide away for three months, but you can't hide him forever. And so here is the next strategy. When she could hide him no longer, she took, uh, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done. Rather than have the Egyptian authorities hunt down her son and kill him, here we see Moses' mother, Jochebed, take her baby and put him in an ark and send him down the river. That's right, I said ark. Because the word here that's used for basket is the Hebrew word tiba, which is used only, the only other place it's used in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 to refer to the ark that Noah built. And it has been brought back here very intentionally to help us understand that once again, like with Noah and his ark, God is bringing salvation to people through water. Just as Noah was saved through the water in that ark, here there is this little ark that Moses has been put in, and he is going to be saved through the waters in that little ark. Just as Noah would save humanity by continuation after the flood was over, so Moses is going to save God's people, and he is going to use an ark to deliver his deliverer in all of this. As we continue on, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. We can see the providence of God thoroughly at work throughout this, can't we? She happened to be walking down to the river at the time that Moses and his ark went by. Her heart was tuned to pity, not like her father's heart, who wants all of these children dead. No, in that moment, her heart happened to be tuned to pity. God's providence is all over this in order to save his great deliverer. And it continues in the next verse. Then his sister, whose sister? Right? Moses' sister Miriam, who has been watching from the bulrushes from a distance, uh, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Miriam, Moses' sister, sees an opportunity here and says, should I, should I go get a nurse? Because of the situation that's going on in Israel, there were a number of moms who were ready to nurse but didn't have children because of what the Egyptians were doing. And so she goes to get a nurse that happens to be Moses' mother, happens to be Moses' mother. And now Moses' mother gets paid in order to raise Moses in her home until he comes to the proper age and then Moses is brought back to Pharaoh's daughter where he is raised as a prince in the home of Pharaoh. God is sovereign in all of these things that we see. Now, Moses grows up in the household of Pharaoh, 
in the royal household of Egypt. And the next verse, verse 11, takes place 40 years later, after he has grown up in the household of Pharaoh. Acts chapter 7 tells us that there is a 40-year gap between verses 10 and 11 here. Verse 10, Moses is a baby, and in verse 11, he is a 40-year-old man. And the first act that we're going to see from Moses as an adult is that he is going to kill someone. Now, there are some people who read the account that we're about to read, and they believe that Moses is meeting out Egyptian justice as a royal prince and judge of Egypt, that he sees something wrong going on, and as a judge in Egypt... He is simply executing Egyptian justice on the situation. There are more people who understand what Moses does in the scene that we're about to read to be wrong. And that ultimately, Moses even knows that what he is doing is wrong. Right? Let's read the passage and you can see what you think as we read it together. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. He went out to what? His people. And looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of what? His people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. It seems clear to me that Moses is not acting here as prince and judge of Egypt, but that what he has done is wrong and he knows it is wrong. He's not acting as prince and judge of Egypt because two different times in the passage, we see that he is identified with his people, the Israelites. As a matter of fact, as we read through Acts chapter 7 and Hebrews chapter 11, it makes it very clear that by this point in his life, Moses had rejected the riches of the palace of Pharaoh and had chosen to be identified with his people Israel. And so he is not acting here as prince and judge of Egypt. He is identifying himself fully as a Jew, as a Hebrew in this particular, in his life at this point. Second, before he kills the man, what does he do? He looks both ways, right, to make sure that no one is looking. How many times have you looked both ways to make sure no one is watching so that you could do something right? Yeah, that, that's not normal. And when he does kill him, what does he do with the body? He buries it. Right? This isn't an Egyptian judge carrying out justice. This is a man who has done something wrong, and he knows he's done something wrong, and he is burying the evidence there in the sand. It seems clear Moses knows that he has done something wrong. Pharaoh certainly believes that Moses has done something wrong, and he wants to kill him for it. And so Moses goes on the run, miles and miles and miles away, outside of Egypt. He goes to the land of Midian, where he is going to now dwell as a shepherd for 40 more years until he comes face to face with a bush that is on fire. But that is an account for next week. As we look at the account that we've gone through for today, 
let me just unpack a couple of different things that I think it teaches us about living in a land of opposition where we may experience hardship and pain in our lives. The first thing I want us to understand is we often suffer because of the sins of others. Every time we suffer, is it because of the sins of others? No way. I suffer because of my own sins and my own mess all the time. But often when we suffer, it's because of the sins of others. We see that all the time in the Bible. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den because of the sins of others. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown in the fiery furnace because of the sins of others. Jeremiah is thrown in a cistern because of the sins of others. Paul is thrown into prison because of the sins of others. Joseph is sold into slavery and then put into prison because of the sins of others. Jesus is ultimately hung on the cross because of the sins of others. We see it all the time in God's word that people suffer because of the sins of others. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise to us when we experience hardship and pain because of the sin and the mess in the lives of others. I'm not suggesting to you it's right, but it shouldn't come as a surprise to us. We see it all the time in the Bible that there is hardship and pain because of sin and mess in other people's lives. And so we may suffer much because of the sins of family members. We may suffer much because of the sins and wickedness of national leaders or the leaders of other nations. We may suffer much because of sin in the lives of our fellow church members or in the lives of our church leaders or in the lives of our boss or in the lives of our co-workers and on and on we could go. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us. There is a lot of suffering in the Bible because of the sin and wickedness of other people. How is it that we can grow better in the midst of those times of suffering and pain and not grow bitter and filled with blame? One key to that is the second thing we see in this passage. Fully acknowledging that God uses suffering for the good of his children. When we are in the midst of that pain and that hardship, we can only grow and grow better through that if we fully acknowledge God uses that for the good of his children. Joseph suffered tremendously as a slave and then a prisoner because of his brother's wicked actions selling him into slavery. But by Genesis chapter 50, he is able to declare what you guys intended for evil, God intended for good. And he is able to see how hundreds of thousands of people have been able to remain alive because of his response to the famine in the region because of how God used that wickedness and brought about good from it in his life and in all of the world. Jesus was killed because of the wicked actions of people. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching and he says, you killed the Christ. And there is no greater good that has ever come about than the substitutionary death of Jesus on our behalf. God used that wickedness and brought about good for his people from it. We're about to see in a moment, God used the wickedness and evil of Egypt in order to bring about great good for his people, the people of Israel. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 may be familiar to you. It says, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
If you are his child, then you are going to suffer pain and hardship because of the sin and the mess in other people's lives many times. But the good news is God specializes in using hardship in the life of his children in order to bring about good. What kind of good? Well, a couple of kinds of good, maybe. The good of growth. The good of growth. God actually used the suffering that Israel endured under Egypt in order to produce numerical growth among the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 1, verse 12 said this, The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The people of Israel grew in number and strength through the persecution that they suffered. The Bible promises that if you're a child of God, it is good news, that if you are a child of God, ultimately, God wants to use pain, hardship, and opposition in your life in order to bring about good in you, the good of growth, endurance, character more like Jesus. That's why James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, consider it What joy? What's the word? Pure joy. 100% joy. When you encounter trials and hardships of many kinds. Because that draws us closer to Jesus, produces greater endurance in us as his followers, and ultimately produces Christ-like character in us. And so we recognize God uses suffering for the good of his children, the good of our growth to become more like Christ. But he also uses it for the good of producing eternal longing or desperation for salvation. What was the greatest threat to Israel in this situation? The greatest threat to Israel was not harm from Egypt. The greatest threat to Israel was comfort in the land of Egypt. The greatest threat to Israel is that they would grow comfortable as they dwelled in the land of Egypt and became Egyptian. That their God, Yahweh, just became one in the pantheon of gods that were being worshipped. That ultimately they settled in and just enjoyed the comforts of Egyptian life. That was the greatest threat to God's people. And God uses suffering and pain to bring them to a place where they want out. As we read through this account, we're going to see, even with suffering and pain, they still had to be convinced to leave. But suffering and pain played a large role in their desire to get out of the world, to get out of Egypt and get to the promised land that God had given to them. And in that same way, God uses pain and hardship in our lives so that we don't get attached to the things of this world and to increase our longing for Jesus and the life that he has for us. Uh, We all enjoy... A beachfront vacation. Beautiful weather, clear waters. Doesn't that sound nice? Do we have a greater longing for that kind of beachfront vacation in January when it's minus 12? And when the snow on the corners of the streets is nine feet tall so you can't see the cars coming? Or in June when it's 80 degrees? And everything is blossoming and beautiful around us. 
Right? We'll, we'll go either time. But don't we have a far greater longing when it's minus 12 and we've had to shovel snow seven of the last 11 days? Yes! But because that pain and that hardship increases our longing for the ideal. And in that same sense, God has designed it so that pain and suffering are meant to come upon his people to increase our desire for the ideal, to keep our minds and our hearts eternally focused so that we're constantly paying attention to him and what he has for us. You remember last week we looked at Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 that said, the disciple of Jesus is one who eagerly awaits Jesus coming. Pain and suffering are part of what God uses in our life to increase that eagerness for what is to come. He uses it for our good, the good of our growth and the good of eternal longing. Another thing we see as we walk through this passage and how we deal with opposition and suffering is this. We must be willing to suffer for God and not give in to eat into the evil movements in society. Right? Choose God, not sinful and idolatrous movements in our society. The midwives were commanded by the most powerful man on earth to kill these Hebrew boys and they don't do it. He could have killed them, like I said, with a snap of their fingers, with a snap of his fingers. And they say, no, we're going with God on this. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, or like the apostles in, Daniel, in Acts chapter 4, they say, it is better to obey God right, than to obey man. Ultimately, we fear the Lord. We are concerned about what he thinks and what he will do, not what people think and what people will do. Moses could have lived as a prince in the home of Pharaoh with all of the wealth, all of the women, all of the riches, all of the comforts that go with that lifestyle. But verse 11 says he chose to stand with God and God's people instead of pursuing all of those idols that the world offered. As a matter of fact, Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is about to become the first martyr, he is recounting this, and he says, When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart, Moses that is, to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand, as you can see from the reaction of the Hebrews that were fighting right after this. Moses thought that when he killed the Egyptian, this was the start of him leading the people of Israel to salvation. He was absolutely wrong about the timing and all of that, as we so often are. But he understood, no, I, I'm a Hebrew. I'm not going to be an Egyptian. I'm not going to live that life. I'm going to be a Hebrew. And I'm going to do what it takes in order for our people to be led to freedom, to salvation. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about this in an even clearer way. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He rejected the temptations of the idols of the world, the evil movements of culture, 
in order to be obedient to God and align with God's people. And that is God's call on our life. In a culture where there may be times where God's people are looked down on, maybe times where you face oppression, maybe times where there's hardship and pain that come with following after Jesus, God's call is for us to follow after him rather than the cultural movements and the idols of this world. When culture encourages us to use words that tear other people down, directly going against God's commands about slander and gossip, we're to go with God, not the ways of the culture. When cultural leaders deny God's design for things like gender and sexuality and mock and ridicule those who won't go along with them, we're to go with God, not with the movements of culture. When teachers deny the possibility of the supernatural or anything miraculous, Contrary to the word and works of God, we're to go with God, not the culture. When church culture becomes more and more self-focused rather than God-focused, sacrifices biblical meeting with God for the sake of entertainment, we're, we're to go with God, not even American culture, church culture. We're to go with God in all of these things. We will either be primarily motivated by God and what he thinks and what he'll do, which is called fear of the Lord, or we will be primarily motivated by people and what they think and what they might do, which is called people-pleasing. God says, have the fear of the Lord, have faith in me. We must be willing to choose God, not sinful and idolatrous movements in society. Finally, when we experience opposition, when we experience pain and suffering, always look to the deliverer. Always look to the deliverer. The focus of this passage turns to Moses, the one that God is going to use in order to deliver his people. That's the focus, and that should be our focus. We're always to look to the deliverer. Moses is infinitely less than Christ, but he is a foreshadowing or a prototype of the Savior and Deliverer that was to come. Moses delivers God's people out of Israel to the promised land, and yet hundreds of years later, people of God were still waiting for someone to deliver them from their sins and to deliver them from death. Because ultimately, Moses as Deliverer is just a small little prototype of the great Deliverer who was to come, who was born in Bethlehem and would save people from their sins. Like Moses, there would also be a leader who would demand the death of young boys when that deliverer was born. As wicked as any of the pharaohs was King Herod the Great, who demanded the slaughter of the innocents. Because of that, Jesus had to escape to Egypt. And then, like Moses, came up out of Egypt to his people. He is the far greater Moses who speaks God's desires for his people. He is the far greater Moses who delivers God's people from their sin and from death. And in the midst of opposition and in the midst of hardship, God says, always look to the deliverer. 
Always have your focus be on the deliverer. There's a lot of other things that we might look to for deliverance, salvation in this life. God says, focus on my son, the true and greater Moses. When we go to the Lord's table, that's our focus. Right? We focus on the deliverer and the deliverance that he has given to us. And we're going to spend now a few minutes preparing our hearts to be ready to participate in the Lord's Supper together. And so I want to invite you to just be thinking about the, the way that God has been at work in your life, forgiving your sins, bringing you to a place in which you have been delivered, in which you have been saved. Spend time focusing on His great grace and His mercy that have been poured out in your life. We're going to take the bread that represents Jesus' body that's been given for us and the cup that represents his shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we do so, we do so in remembrance of him, focused on him and his great salvation and deliverance in our lives. When you're ready, I'd invite you to go to the tables that are in the four corners of the room. Take the bread and take the cup. And bring it back to your seats and followers of Jesus, we're going to take those elements together. Let me invite you to stand with me. Let's continue to praise and worship our great God as we take the Lord's Supper together.